0: British Nigerian actor and climate activist called Fainty Balogun is exercised about climate change. He was in Dune, he was in I May Destroy You, and he's presented at the UN COP26 Climate Summit, the Scottish Parliament, Cambridge University, YouTube Creator Summit, and he's making a digital appearance at the Nelson Arts Festival this weekend with a show, essentially a one-man show, called Can I Live? It's an hour-long spoken word. It's got hip-hop, it's got music, and it's exploring climate change and environmental activism. I called out with them the other day and asked him if he needs to update the climate change information all the time.
1: So we've been taking it to different communities and doing different screenings and doing talks afterwards. Whilst including communities, so I guess we let it say what it needs to say, and then we talk about what's changed and how we go forward.
0: But you're not necessarily needing to update the scientific facts in it.
1: Not really; they still stand pretty much. Yeah. And unfortunately, um, government failures have only gotten worse and not proved at and not improved at all. So. Um uh, yeah, there's not really a problem with that until I'm shocked and something changes.
0: Do you wonder whether democracy is the right model to do anything about climate change?
1: <laughs> oh, boy. Ain't that the question. Mm. Um, yeah, wow, wow. Big question. I, I think democracy in its essence is just like a mass choice, right? And so I guess it is... A choosing to do something completely out of the ordinary, which I think is more than the options that we've been given. Um, I don't know if that, that 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 just comes. I don't think that just comes from voting. I don't think that comes from waiting for people to tell us what to do or how to save how to save ourselves. I think it comes from understanding what needs to be done and demanding it. Like the the, the people in government work for us not the other way around, and I think for so long we've been convinced that they make decisions and then we just go on with it, whereas everything that we've ever had, every right that we fight for, is something we've taken, um, and I think that needs to be more of the discussion than it is. How's your mum? Mum's good. Mum's really good. She's really, really good.
0: Does she enjoy being part of this?
1: Do yeah, Absolutely. She's the star. <laughs>
0: For the people, um... for the people who, who aren't aware of this, your mother, you name-check her from the very beginning and she has, mm-hmm. as you say, a starring role at the end. Um, mm. She was not wholehearted about you undertaking this and she wasn't wholehearted about you being an actor, actually. What did she say? How can you want to prostitute your feelings for money?
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which well, is one way of putting prost- it, right? Yeah, yeah. My mum's very clever like that.
0: Has she come around?
1: Um, yeah, I think so. I think with the acting thing, she's come around because I, I did quite well with
0: it. You haven't <laughs> done badly. Yeah.
1: No, I've not done badly. So I think she's definitely come around. And with, with everything else, um, my mum's thought process has definitely shifted on 100%. Um, I think she's gotten to the point where I was and sometimes of, of like where do we go from here, like I still have to pay my bills, I still have to go to work when i 'm aware that this is happening, what what more do I need to do, what more am I part of in order to to make some change, which is so exciting for her to be there as opposed to nothing 's going on, and we don 't have space to deal with it now it 's like asking the question of how do we go forward yeah
0: and of course, as the family wisdom goes, do you work keep your head down don 't get into trouble. Mm. Um, Mm. That was your first act of rebellion, which led you to Extinction Mm. Rebellion, really, right?
1: Mm, Yeah, yeah.
0: So when it comes to Extinction Rebellion, is Mm. that still a thing or has has it disseminated itself throughout and has ceased to exist as an organization or is it still doing it?
1: Extinction Rebellion still exists. I think it's changed, and uh, there are other organizations that do they're a little bit more in the forefront of the the um the news. Um like Just Up Oil or um a couple of others. Mm. Um so there, there are lots of groups that still exist, and I think it there was a real change when it came to COVID, because there was such a buildup of environmental activism. Uh, and it's intersection with all the different types of activism. And then we were all at home. And then we kind of, it was it was more difficult to get back from the momentum and other things that happened uh, during the movement. And my personal affiliation has always been to find every year I ask myself, where am I the most helpful and how can I make the most difference? Um, and, uh, you know, one year it was with Extinction Rebellion. Um, another year it was with a different group. This year um, it has been about working with my union and connecting different grassroots movements, including any XR groups that exist or any other groups to people who just don't know anything about anything. Um, and that's why I've been the most helpful, I think, um, just finding where I fit in order to use my privilege to make a difference.
0: Informing people is one thing, but you also have to give them agency. Otherwise, we just all slump. And feel Absolutely. helpless. Absolutely. There's, there's a very moving part of your production where Ken Sarawiwa, uh, the Ogoni activist uh, in Nigeria, is is being channelled by you. Um, yeah. He sparked a huge climate movement. And mm-hmm. as your mother, I think, pointed out, he's dead now. And yeah. you have to figure out whether if he couldn't achieve what he wanted to achieve,
1: mm. uh, who can? Mm. I was talking about um, moments that we view in history and how we mark them. So there are moments like the Kensar Real Movement, there are moments where Shell left Nigeria, there are moments where the UK declares a climate emergency, there are moments where... You know, uh, there's less deforestation in Brazil than there has been for the last couple of years. There are these really positive things that pop up from quite derelict times and they're never quite as um, world-changing as, as we want them to be. But one thing that I, I was saying to my friend the other day is these are tipping point moments. These are the moments that we get to to view and I think they build up to other movements and moments. We don't get to see the little bits. We don't get to see the the changes that are happening that build up to that. And I and I also don't think that the fight has ended. I think that all of these things are part of a much bigger, a bigger shift, a bigger tipping point that we're building up to. And and revolutions and changes in society are cyclical, and it's not so much necessarily about, um, willing them to come on. They will happen it's just how we react and how we're prepared. And I think having the information and knowing how a society can run could run, how you could be a part of that in terms of how we need to run more communally, how we need to think about circular economies, how we need to make mass changes, there will be a point where those decisions will need to be made and we have to fight for them and so these tipping point moments that we see that are positive are changing our perspectives on how we view our future could be. People like, the reason I picked Ken Saruiwa wasn't just because of how inspiring he was and, and what he achieved but also because of how ordinary parts of his life were, or those in the movement were. You know, this is a writer, this is a television writer and poet, who then was part of the Agony Nine, the Agony Nine being other members of that community. Although inevitably a lot of them died, or were killed, the effect that they have had on the people going forward and at that moment can't be denied. And I think it's understanding that we're all part of this narrative and that we have to take a step outside of what we think we're capable of in order to make a huge shift. And then we get our tipping point moment where it's suddenly like, you know, this thing we can achieve, whereas a couple of years ago we didn't think we could do. Civil rights being that, gay marriage being that, like all of these things we thought were impossible suddenly become common sense.
0: The reason Can I Live is so mesmerizing actually is not only your your face you know you've got that face but it's also the shift in in vehemence the shift in tone the shift in mood and and it can be gentle and it can be meditative and it can be fond and it's also angry you know you don't want a seat at the table you want to burn the table. Now, mm. where does anger fit? Where does violence fit? Where does direct action fit in your view mm. of the urgency of the situation?
1: Anger is so important. Anger is so important. It's so hard. It's really, to, to be real with you, it's so difficult. Um, sometimes to work out how best to mobilize ourselves i I, I have i have sort of two parts to the answer and i need to sort of work them through so I'll, i'll start with anger and then we'll get to direct action when it comes to anger i'm a i'm a six foot one quite big black guy right and And so anger is something I have to be very strategic about. It's not something I am in society allowed to be. It's something I struggle with, actually. And expressing that anger is a political act because, as it's happened many a times, someone has said to me, you can't communicate when you're angry at me, right? And it's not that I'm angry at the person, it's that I'm angry at the situation, I've been put in, that we've all been put in, that we're having to fight people who constantly gaslight us into thinking that we shouldn't be fighting, that we should just continue on as as we're going. And so I'm furious.
0: I mean, not only are you black, by the way, just to insert here, but you're also of immigrant stock.
1: Yeah. So that's
0: that's part of your mother's warning, right? You just keep your head down. You can't go criticising this country.
1: Yeah, because otherwise they'll, they'll take something away from us. Yeah. That's that's there's always the fear that someone's gonna, you know, take something away from you. We say in the film, you know, you know, you can't go to the forefront if you're worried about your immigration status or somebody in your family worried about it. Like there's this this real stuff that we have to have to think about. So I'm, I, I mean my biggest point here is strategy, right? Strategy, 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 strategy. And and this connects with the direct action is and, and the tipping point point I made earlier is that like all of these things are strategic. And I think sometimes we do things individually that work, right? And things are started individually. I'm not taking away from that. But for the most part, everything that has an effect has been planned out, has been led to, has been sort of designed to have that thing. And I think we forget that because we react. I I speak for a lot of people I know myself. We react emotionally. We react very quickly emotionally. So if something's sad or bad we need to get out that sad or bad to make ourselves feel better. And it's a longer process than that, right? And I think that it's just built pushing forward with that, with that emotion, with that anger, with, the, with finding your group and planning how we're going to do that. And I think that's when direct action works. When it doesn't work is when it goes awry, because they will take away from us anything if we give them reason. So we have to plan it out. We have to plan out to make sure that we are doing things as well and as effectively as they can be done. Um, And then when it comes to communicating with people, I have to take into effect that, yeah, I'm a six-for-one black guy from Nigeria who lives in the UK. And some people are just naturally going to have some kind of thing about me when I'm communicating. So I have to be... Strategic about how I talk to people, when I talk to people, what I'm talking to them about, and that's exhausting. But that's also part of the movement, and that's how I've been taking it and, and dealing with it personally.
0: When you say they will take it away from us, who is
1: they? It. Okay, so I think a really good example is something Daniel Collier said in this interview with LeBron James one time, and they're, they're sitting in this barbershop, barbershop, and they were talking about the the World Cup, right? And they've got three three black British boys who are like, very much the forefront uh, of the British team. And for the whole World Cup, the whole world, the whole of the UK, and it's like, those are our boys. Those mm-hmm. are our boys. Like, you've got to do it. You've got to do it. They miss penalties. And all of a sudden, they're from somewhere else. Oh,
0: God. Yes. All
1: of a sudden, they're from somewhere else. They don't deserve to be here. They need to be off the team. They need to go back for where they came mm. from. And all of that acclaim, all of that we're British is taken away. It's different. And all of a sudden you are, you are othered because you can be. The choice of being othered is not something you get to decide on. It's something someone else has a right to. And that's systemic racism just in working.
0: Do you feel vulnerable a lot? Or are you... I mean, as you are an incredibly successful actor... Did you have to get there before you felt strong enough to fight this fight or was it just timing?
1: That's so funny because I, I don't even feel I'm there. <laughs> um, I've had so many conversations with friends, especially especially before a topic is particularly popularised. Like before it's cool, like I think now in terms of climate change and, and, and race and justice and the intersection, it's way more in the public eye. When I was just starting and I was raising stuff up, like I remember I was on a big budget production and I tried to raise stuff up and I was terrified they would replace me. I was so terrified because I, I bypassed everybody. I went straight to the production truck. I went on this, and I was, I was nothing in this film, like a tiny part, but I really cared. And I just wanted to talk about this thing. And I was terrified that, no one would listen to me, that I'd get fired, that I'd be blacklisted. And really recently, I'm working on uh, a green rider with uh, Equity for a Green New Deal, and that's our union. And it basically is ensuring that the con- we have contractual obligations with the companies that produce the shows to like radically green ideals of how we make TV, hopefully revolutionising how we make TV. But even in that, when I talk to actors, they're terrified, terrified that they're going to get blacklisted replaced unpopular cancelled because they're standing up for something that that is is inherently anti-capitalist right and we live in a in a capitalist society and all of a sudden you're saying okay were you questioning how much money we're going to make are you going to be difficult and so even now when i talk to different actors about this or i raise something or i'm very, very public about how i feel about something i'm still like a little bit scared to be honest um, but also realising that I have to, because otherwise what will we have left, you know?
0: There's some very big names supporting that Green Rider, you know, Tom Burke and Ben Whishaw and Mark Rylance and yourself. Mm, mm, what mm. what actually will it say? What difference will it make, the Green Rider?
1: I think the Green Rider will make a huge difference, and I think because the the... In, in its contractually stuff, it's, it's really interesting because actually how it works is you change the nature of the relationship between the actor and production. And that's how the system basically has to change. Instead of it being like, here's a thing, you'll do it and won't complain. Instead, it becomes a conversation both ways. An actor says, I I realise that there is a climate emergency. I realise that we cannot make work unless we adapt the way we make work. I realise also that actors at a certain stage in their career uh, will make demands upon uh, upon a production that will mean that you can't reach these certain things. You can't reach these aims. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to say, I won't do X, Y, Z if you as a production don't do A, B, C right? And that is us in agreement with how we can make this production better. It's no longer about you do this and I do this. It's about how do we work together? Because the only way we can survive in this world through climate crisis is with community, is with working together. And this is a really practical resource. And the reason I think focusing on the... um, uh, the the acting industry is, is so pivotal and important. Also a way that I can get in because it is my industry is because it mirrors the bigger world. Everything in how a film is made mirrors how a business runs, mirrors how a government runs, and you suddenly change something that in society is a huge part of its economic resources, of its cultural resources. Suddenly, you're not just changing the industry you work in, but you're changing the world you live in by designing a different way it can be done. And not just in a, in a like, sort of like, oh, okay, we did this little production that was sort of okay by producing excellent, whilst at the same time providing a future for yourself and your family. And I think we do that well. We set a model, a precedent for how we go forward in every business, in every industry, because we affect that much in doing that here.
0: I'm talking to British Nigerian actor Fenty Balagon about his creed occur about climate change. It's interesting, isn't it? Because I think in a lot of areas of life, climate change and concern about climate change is cordoned off. You know, yeah. they're doing that over there. And OK, so we'll recycle. But but yeah. your oh. argument oh. is that you make it a you make it a continuous thread throughout everything mm. we do. Mm.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Climate change isn't the problem. We say this, I've said this in Can I Live, and and hopefully for those listening, I, I can't wait for you to watch it and enjoy it and to continue this conversation. Climate change is not the problem. Climate change is a symptom of the problem. The reason it's a symptom of the problem is because even if we came up with a magical technology which suddenly cleared the air and made it safe, it would only function in certain communities for certain people because that is how our system is structured. If you are wealthy, if you are a certain type of person, the access to such a technology will come to you before it gets to anybody else. Not only that, but the resources from those poorer areas, from those people who cannot afford it, will be given to you. So even... If we have the solution, the only so people that will get that solution are those that can afford it. Are those that are from that class and rewarded? But hang so on a minute, changes- hang on a minute,
0: hang on a minute. What solution would you be thinking of that could so easily be um, uh, acquired by a small number? I mean, any solution would benefit the globe, surely.
1: I think in this situation, I'm thinking of a of a hypothetical. But I mean, it, 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 it's proven on a daily basis. So something like um, in South Africa, where water was being taken to uh, 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 more wealthy areas, instead of it being with oh, even what Nestle does, which is constantly taking resources from poorer people and giving it to richer people. I understand. We have the res- yeah, yeah, we. Um, yeah,
0: you weren't talking about a solution to to the climate crisis. You were talking about works around it. You were talking Absolutely. about how to avoid dealing with it.
1: Yeah, I think I think if the only way you could have a real solution to the climate crisis is to challenge the structural imba- imbalances that create it.
0: Now, well, there you go. You see, we always end up here, though, don't we? Capital mm. capitalism, <laughs> capitalism has to go. Yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah, and there are there there are other economic models that work. You but see, you don't explore them.
0: That's that's the mountain at the bottom of which people kind of slump down and start yeah, feeling yeah. exhausted, because yeah. you know climate change is one thing, and as you start out, you know, don't give me that plastic bag. Put the plantain. In a brown paper bag or no plastic bag at all, and then here we are um, dismantling capitalism. I just—it's
1: <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: a long way to go from there to there, right?
1: Yeah, it's like the practical steps of how to get it. I'm reading a book at the minute called Earth for All, which I think is sort of brilliant. It gives really sort of practical steps for how to create change and the the the, the, the um. Getting to where we are at the minute, which is, you know, in order for us to make huge swathes of change in a short time, it has to be structural. It has to be through legislation. It has to be on mass. And I think one thing that is, is sort of beautiful that I think we cannot forget as people who then go, oh, God, capitalism has to change. is sort of my earlier point is that we've changed so much already. We've achieved so much by asking and demanding for it. And I think we really take that for granted for how much and how much progress we've made as people, which just goes to show that if we know what to demand, we can get it. We just have to fight for it.
0: Have you read Kim Stanley Robinson?
1: No, I haven't.
0: Well, his latest book is called Ministry for the Future. And I think you'd like it. I spoke to him a couple of weeks ago and he's he's quite an optimist. Um, but he's dealing with all these things and he's got ways to do it, you know. He knows how to do it. Mm. He's a science fiction writer, um, but rooted in the world. And he's quite concerned about the climate crisis. Just recommending that
1: for I'm you. writing it down as we speak.
0: Kem Stanley Robinson, Ministry for the Future. All right. So how do you combine? And I understand that the Green Rider will make it a lot easier for you to feel... Uh, a synthesis between your two lives as an actor and a climate activist. How much yeah. time do you give to being an activist?
1: Mm. In, in In my life in general? Yeah. Oh, I mean, you so know, to... I've
0: got a movie coming up and I want you to be in it, but it, you know, it'll screw up your representation at some major climate conference. What do you do?
1: Oh, okay. Well, that that's just about assessing where am I the most helpful and what's the best strategic thing to do. Um, I, I think about strategy all the time. If I'm going into a building, I've done the research and the people in the building and who I want to talk to and how I'm going to get there. So if it's about doing... The thing about doing movies and films is that I love doing it. I love creating character, but I also have such an opportunity to meet other people. So it's not as if I'm I'm leaving... Um. I'm leaving the activism behind to go do a film, is that I'm working on a film, I'm meeting people within the film industry who might be interested in the rider, who might be interested in the green things that we're doing, who might want to invest in different places. These investors might, I always link to to grassroots movements, which is how the green writers started in the first place, was Can I Live being shown at NBC Universal, me reading a bunch of producers, introducing those producers to my union. Like, every move is strategic, and being part of a film is, is will only be part of that strategy. I get to meet more people, I'm exposed to more people, like we go on the press tour. It, I think it all factors in um because it, it it's a little bit deaf if we separate them, separate these different parts of our lives sometimes. And actually they really work together quite well.
0: What was the epiphany for you?
1: Uh in what sense?
0: Climate change.
1: Oh <laughs> what was the epiphany Um the the honest truth is that I love this sounds so hippie. I love the planet, but I also love all the promises that I was given as a kid, basically. Um through television, through media, through what my parents said, through what every politician told me. Is they basically told me that I was gonna have everything my parents didn't have and more. I was gonna get the same world. I was gonna get the same the opportunities. I was gonna get a big old house and a garden and be able to have a massive family and go all these trips and explore the world and that the natural world would just keep growing and being beautiful and everything would be the same, but more. And I bought it and I loved it and I wanted it and I craved it and I love being in nature and I love all of those promises. And then I was told that they were lies and the grief of having that version of my future ripped away from me is, is sort of unbelievably painful because I pictured it, I pictured my life and how it could look and should look. And now I know what the future looks like without it being changed. I know the course we're on without us changing it. And that, was a massive wake up call. That for me is like, okay, right, well, where do we go now? Because I want that. I want to be able to have those things. So, how do I provide that for myself and my family and everyone that I know who deserves that as well? And I think that really changed for me. You got kids. I don't have kids, no.
0: I wondered whether that might have given you the jolt most people get the jolt when they had kids because it makes them realise that they've got an investment in the future that they didn't have before.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Um, I wish you well. Uh, everybody's looking Thank forward you. to seeing the show. And what are you working on at the moment um, in terms of your actorly pursuits?
1: I don't know if I'm allowed to talk about Oh, sure you are. <laughs> um well, it was announced. It was announced, I think. Um, so we, we are... Oh, don't cancel me. Um, <laughs> I'm working on a, an adaption of a book called Gentleman in Moscow um, uh, for Paramount and Showtime. Um, and that will be out as soon as the strikes finish because um, then we can uh, finish filming it. "Gentlemen in Moscow we...
0: being about what? Yeah, yeah.
1: Um, it's it's a really cool book if you if if anyone has heard Is it nothing, is it something to do about,
0: with ken Philby?
1: no no what is no. it it is uh it's set in the 1920s russia um uh, a man a gentleman uh, played by Ewan mcgregor is um as uh, it's during the Russian Revolution, and he is about to be sent off to be executed, and instead he is um, sentenced to live out the rest of his life in a hotel. Oh in, no, what a and, terrible um, fate And what role do you have? Yeah, <laughs> you basically get to to watch this man's life in in this hotel, and I get to play his best friend, and you watch us grow into, in, you, I don't know, ruin it, but you, a lot, a lot, a lot happens, is what I'll say.
0: Looking forward to it. Do you have to go to Moscow to film it? I take
1: it not. No, we filmed it at Manchester. Very good. <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's the thing about Manchester. Uh, very good to talk to you. Thank you, Fenty.
1: Thank you so much for having me. It's a dream.
0: And that was Fenty Balogun, who is appearing at the Nelson Festival in the coming week, and we have the festival programme on our webpage.